0: So I love the, uh, you know, all of my sermon illustrations are about TV because I love TV, you know. So uh, one of my favorite TV shows is, um, what's it called, The Crown. And it's a show about the Queen of England, uh, Elizabeth. And it kind of covers her entire life from her childhood to, uh, I think, the next season is going to get into all the Princess Diana stuff. Um, But it's really interesting. We are... Americans for some reason are fascinated, uh, with the idea of the British Royal family for some reason. Like, uh, remember, uh, oh, uh, William and Kate, I think was her name, uh, who got married and everybody woke up at midnight. And then the other one, the little brother got married too. um, you know, people are waking up at midnight, two in the morning to watch these weddings, uh, here in America. And we're just fascinated by the whole thing, the whole royalty, um, you know, shtick. And, uh, one of the things that's fascinating, though, is just the um, the, the the pomp and circumstance and the, the pageantry and all that sort of stuff and the rituals. And as I was watching The Crown, one of the things that was really interesting to me was um, the part where uh, there's a dude. And, like, basically, this guy's job, he works for the royal family, and his main job is when people show up to Buckingham Palace or to wherever to meet the king... Uh, sorry, to meet the queen, Uh, he goes, this guy goes through all the royal protocols. I don't remember what they are off the top of my head, but it's like, make sure you, you, you shake her hand and bow and like, uh, don't ever turn your back to her and you have to walk out backwards. And, you know, there's like all these protocols. And so everybody who meets the queen has to meet this guy first and has to get the sort of this guy prepares them for meeting the queen. And I thought that, you know, I I always thought that was really funny. There's all these protocols. But anyway, it's kind of an interesting job that this guy has. Everybody he meets, they don't care about him at all. All they care about is what's coming right after they meet this guy. His whole job is just get them ready for the queen. Uh, That's the job of John the Baptist, who we're going to read about today. Um, His job is to show up before people meet the royalty, right? Before people meet the king and to get everybody's Uh, But instead of the royal protocol of, oh, you have to bow in this stuff or we'll chop your head off or whatever, I don't know what happens if you don't bow. But you know, before, uh, uh, unlike that, what he's doing is he's preparing the hearts of the people of God uh, to meet the King who's coming, the King Jesus. And so we're going to read about the ministry of uh, John the Baptist today. So uh, uh, we'll be, we'll start here in Luke chapter uh, three, we're going to read the first two verses here. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Eritrea and Trachonitis maybe and Licinius, Tetrarch tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, uh, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So last time we left off with the story of the boy Jesus in the temple, and it said he returned, you know, the whole thing from last week with uh, the meeting the, the the scribes and Pharisees and learning and the boy Jesus growing up, and we talked about the humanity of Jesus. Well, now Luke skips the narrative, uh, you know, till Jesus is now in his 30s. So uh, we jump forward a whole bunch of years, probably something like 20 years or more, um, and The year is now something like 29 AD, and uh, we know um, because it says here in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Tiberius became the emperor in 14 AD. So there's a huge list of rulers here. Let me tell you about each one of these guys. So in chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, we read about a Caesar named Caesar Augustus. This guy's a different Caesar. This is uh, Tiberius Caesar. He was the stepson of Caesar Augustus, and he took power kind of later in life at the age of 56. And what he was known for was um, he was like a decent ruler and just an absolutely horrible uh, person who was... Um, constantly satisfying his own lust and his own violence and all this sort of stuff. So he was like a halfway decent administrator and then like a terrible person. And so whenever we read about Caesar in the gospels, this is the guy who's mentioned. So that's the first guy. We have Caesar ruling from Rome. Then we read about Pontius Pilate. Now, most of us know who Pontius Pilate was. Um, He was he reigned as the prefect of uh, Judea from 26 to 37 AD. So uh, just about 11 years. And what he was actually known for, aside from the whole Jesus's trial and the what is truth and all that stuff, what he was known for was he was a horribly violent leader. And eventually his violence went too far, even for the Romans. Um, later on, he killed a bunch of after Jesus's... Um, Uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection and all that, like a few years later, he uh, killed a whole bunch of Samaritans, and uh, the Roman officials removed him from office, and he died in disgrace. And so that's the life of Pontius Pilate. Uh, There's actually a few things written about him outside of the Bible as well next it we talk uh, it talks about Herod, so this is Herod Antipas. This guy was the son of Herod the Great, uh, who we learned about in the infancy narrative. Um, this whole Herod family was absolutely insane; they were nuts power hungry murderers, politically corrupt to the core. Uh, these guys always wanted more. And more power than they had. And the uh, the way it worked was they were basically Roman puppets, but they were always reaching for more power. And in the rest of the Gospels, when we read about Herod, when we read the name Herod, this is the Herod that we read about, Herod Antipas. Um, Then we read about Philip here uh, is the next one, I think, in the list. Um, Yeah, and his brother Philip. So Philip was another son of Herod the Great. So he ruled a smaller area from his brother that was uh, just to the east of the Jordan River. And then we learn about these two high priests, um, Annas and Caiaphas. So by this point, the high priesthood had become very political. And whoever was the high priest had a lot of political power. Annas was the high priest from uh, AD 6 until the year somewhere around 1516, his son-in-law Caiaphas then took over and was the high priest until 36 AD. And normally what would have happened was the high priest would have served a a lifetime term, like a Supreme Court appointment. But by this time, the high priesthood had become so uh, political and they had become these Roman puppets. And so in one sense, Caiaphas was the high priest because Rome had put him in as the high priest. But in another sense, Annas was the high priest because it's supposed to be a lifetime appointment. And so almost together, these guys shared the office. Annas was the unofficial high priest. So most of the Jewish folks considered him the high priest, even though uh, Rome had taken the office away from him. Right. So um, it's not exactly the same thing because there's way more political intrigue, but it's kind of like how right now there's two popes. You know, the one guy, Benedict, uh, he retired and then Francis took over. And uh, I think they still call Benedict the pope. I actually have no idea. But, you know, there's sort of uh, two popes. And so we have these two guys, Annas and Caiaphas. We're going to read a little bit about them at the end of the book of Luke. Um, But what's one of the interesting things about these guys is Caiaphas. Um, uh, an archaeological find. They actually found the ossuary box of Caiaphas. Now, what that was was back in the day, they would take your body and they would put you in a tomb and then you would sort of decompose until it was just bones. Then somebody would go into the tomb, take all the bones, pile them up and put them in these boxes that were very ornate. And so they actually found the box of this guy, Caiaphas. And so I think it's in Israel right now somewhere. You can go see uh, this guy's grave, basically, grave box. This was a real guy. We have real proof of this guy that he existed. And so that's the list of men, right? We've got the Herods, uh, the governors, the tetrarchs, you know, all these different guys. We have the high priests, and then, we're, you know, all these powerful men. And then all of a sudden we have John the Baptist, the miracle son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke doesn't give us a huge description of John the Baptist. Uh, but Matthew does in his gospel and in Matthew's telling he describes him like a wild person uh in the wilderness. You know, the description that you know comes from the book of Matthew, right? He wore the camel skin loincloth and uh he ate locusts and honey as a diet. And the locust and honey thing is kind of interesting. Any of us reading that would have been like, "Oh, that's gross." Uh, But one commentator pointed out that it doesn't ever say he only ate those two things. Um, And those two things, right, locusts and honey, uh, were common staples of poor folks who lived in the wilderness area. So it'd be like now if you were describing somebody and you said, oh, that guy, you know, John the Baptist, he ate a lot of cup of noodles and TV dinners. Basically, John was a part of this group of poorer people uh, who lived out in the desert region. And all of this is done to paint John uh, as one of the non elites, right? We have all these elite people. We have Caesar and Pontius Pilate and the Herods and the high priests. And then we have John, who's just this regular poor guy who lived out in the wilderness in Israel. There's this contrast. Uh, There's important people according to the world. And then there's John, but he'll be important in the kingdom of God, not important in the world. And so what it says is that the word, uh, wait, let me find it exactly. Uh, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So it didn't come to, the word of God didn't come to uh, the high priest's uh, it didn't come to Pontius Pilate or Caesar. It came to John. And this is the way this is phrased is Luke's attempt to, uh, connect John to the old Testament prophets, right? The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel or to, you know, was how those old Testament prophets were always introduced, not always, but usually introduced. And so John now is being portrayed as sort of the last old Testament prophet, right? The last in this line of prophets. So what is it? What was his message? Verse three. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So John now is out at the Jordan River and people are coming to him and they're being baptized. So talk about baptism for a second. The baptism of John. Uh, Baptist, John did not invent baptism. John the Baptist. I uh, didn't invent this idea. Uh, ritual washing, or like a baptism sort of a ritual, was the process, part of the process of how an outsider would convert to the Jewish faith at this time, along with circumcision, if you were a guy and some other stuff, right? But, but the ritual washing was almost like to wash the Gentile stink off of you, was the idea. And it was part of the holiness uh, rituals in the Old Testament law right this ritual washing and so if somebody wanted to convert they would do all these things but part of it was okay now I'm going to take this this bath sort of right this ritual washing and I'm going to become a full fledged member of the Jewish community but John's baptism is different you see John's message was so radical because he was telling Jewish folks who were already a part of the covenant you guys now need to go and you need to be baptized you need to come to god The same way that outsiders need to come to God. And what that involved was repentance that leads to forgiveness of sin. Um, So the idea of repentance uh, in the Bible, I say this a lot. Every time the word repentance comes up, I give you this same thing. All it means is to turn around. And so the idea is to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. And so this repentance will lead then to the forgiveness of sin. Now, the idea of sin, what is that? What do we mean when we're talking about sin? So I'll read to you what the New City Catechism, uh, how the New City Catechism defines sin. It's in question 16. It says this, what is sin, is the question. The answer is, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in death and the disintegration of all creation. So here's what John is saying that you, even you Jewish folks who think that you're good just because you go to the temple and you do all this, you're sinners and you need to repent of this sin. You are in rebellion against God. And so you need to turn away from your sin and you then need to turn towards God almighty. But here's the thing, right? When we, some messages that I've seen that talk about John the Baptist, and even some of the stuff that I read that I was prepping for this, Try to figure out, well, how did John preach the whole gospel? And they kind of twist John's words. And, oh, what he meant was, you know, well, here's the thing. John's message as he's preaching to these specific Jewish people uh, who were coming out to the Jordan to meet him and be baptized, his message was not the whole gospel story. And I'll tell you how we know this or how why this is important. Um, remember, later on, if you go read the book of Acts, there's a story in Acts 18. And in that story, we meet a guy named Apollos. And Apollos is described as this brilliant um, teacher. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's this really smart dude. And but the thing is, he what it says is um, uh, or Uh, He's discipled. I'll say this. He's discipled by Aquila and Priscilla. And as they get to know him more, what they realize is, oh, he doesn't have the whole story. And Luke specifically says in the book of Acts, who also wrote our book, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, he specifically says that, oh, all he had ever heard of was John's baptism. And so they took him aside, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and they discipled him and they filled in the gaps. The point being the baptism of John wasn't the whole story. It wasn't enough. He was calling people to repent of their sin and to turn back to God. But remember, what he was really doing is he's telling people about the problem and then getting them ready for the solution. He's not giving them the whole solution. The baptism of John specifically uh, was just getting people ready for the coming king. That's his mission, getting people ready for the messianic king who's about to show up and perform his ministry and die and rise again. So he's, he's preaching this baptism of repentance. Um, and then in verse four, uh, the text continues. It says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low." And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become uh, level ways. So this here, this quote, or this, it's really more of an allusion to a few different spots in Isaiah, mostly from chapter 40, but a few spots from kind of all over. Now, remember the promise of the, the, the coming messianic king that comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God tells David, there is going to be a messiah, this king, and he's going to come from your line. And all throughout the prophetic books, these prophets, they picked up that theme over and over again, and they kept insisting, this king is coming, and that's where the people of Israel can find hope. The king is coming. The me- the Messiah is coming. Um, and so this passage specifically, Isaiah 40, was written to the exiles in Babylon, and it was written to give them a message of hope. Guys, I know things seem bad right now, but eventually this messianic king is coming. And so Luke now is picking up on that theme of hope. And he's saying that hope has shown up in John the Baptist now. He's the one who's here to get people ready for Jesus, to get people ready for the Messiah. And so how does he do that, right? He prepares the way. He makes the path straight. He fills in the valleys and he lowers the mountains. Now, uh, there was an ancient practice um, before a king would show up to a city where he would send somebody ahead of him. And that person would, uh, would come and they would, uh, you know, get the whole city ready for the king. So all the different preparations. And sometimes that involved smoothing out the road leading into the city. So the king's, you know, chariot or cart or hort, whatever, you know, would be a lot smoother. Um, and so this is sort of a reference for that. It's a lot like how, I remember a while ago watching, you know, one of those, uh, I don't know, history channel or discovery channel or something where they were talking all about what happens before a presidential visit, like all the planning. And I remember it was, um, I forget if it was Bush or Obama, but one of the presidents was doing a visit to, um, somewhere in Florida, Tampa or somewhere. And so they followed the, the team that would go ahead of the president and get everything ready. And they would fly down the, um, the Beast—that's the um, the presidential limo. They would fly that down. They would clear all the paths and get the police already. And I mean, it, it's this big, elaborate process to get everybody ready for the president who's going to fly in. And then the president flies in and he doesn't see most of this stuff that happens, right? Well, that kind of reminds me of what John is, how John is described here. He's the one who goes ahead. He makes these preparations and he's getting people ready uh, for the coming of the King. That's what his ministry is all about. Not solving everybody's problems, not teaching them how to ultimately be forgiven, not to teach the entire gospel But for this specific group of people, he was called to prepare their hearts because the king was coming. And so, verse six, though, the end of the quotation, it says this, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So, remember. John's ministry is to Jewish folks. That's who he's called to. Almost exclusively Jewish folks are coming out to see John. And he's calling them to be baptized, just like outsiders uh, were baptized. That was an absolutely radical idea. But another radical idea here that we've seen already in the book of Luke a handful of times is that salvation was meant to extend beyond the ethnic Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Right? That's what it says. All flesh, meaning all different kinds of people this doesn't mean this isn't universalism this doesn't mean every person in the entire world will be saved but when it says all flesh it just means like all different kinds of people are who are made in the image of god are going to be redeemed outside of the ethnic jews and the gospel is going to go to the world. This, this Messiah is not just going to be the king of the Jews. He's going to be the Jewish king who saves all kinds of people, right? But it's not all, that's the good news, right? It's not all just roses though. There's the flip side of this, right? The king is coming, but some people are going to reject him. And so it says here in verse seven, he says, therefore to the crowds, Uh, that came out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So Luke doesn't specifically tell us who these crowds are. He just says the crowd. Uh, Matthew does get a little bit more specific. And he says among that crowd was a group of religious leaders who were there to see, kind of evaluate John. Who is this guy? What is he all about? And so look at what he calls these guys. He calls them a brood of vipers. Now I hate snakes, uh, like, more than I hate working out, uh, almost as much as I hate the Dodgers. I really don't like snakes. And uh, what he calls them is a brood of vipers, which is like a pile of snakes. It's like a full body shivers worth of snakes. Ew, even thinking about it is gross. It's like in that movie, True Grit. If you ever saw either one, I think it had snakes in both of those movies, the new one and the old one. Um, in True Grit, you know, the little girl falls into the pile of um of rattlesnakes. But if you've ever seen that, like on, uh, you know, Animal Planet or was it Planet Earth or one of those, where there's just literally, it's like a pile of uh, snakes and they're all slithering on top of each other. It's gross and it's awful. And then when you add that onto the imagery of the snake in the garden, it's clear what John is saying. He's basically calling these guys uh, who are there with impure motives, he's calling them an evil pile of yucky, disgusting snakes, right? He's questioning their motives for being there. And he says, he's talking about the wrath to come. And so do you see both sides of John's message? There's grace coming for some who turn to the coming king, and there's wrath for those who don't right? The wrath that's to come. And he's telling them, don't think that just because you were born into this people of God, don't think just because you're a leader of the Pharisees or you're a leader of the Sadducees that you work in the temple or whatever it is that you do, don't think that you don't have to repent as well. Don't think that you don't have to turn to God um, and receive salvation. And so verse Uh, 8 he continues he says bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves we have abraham as our father for uh, i tell you god is able from these stones to raise up children for abraham even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree every tree therefore that does not bear fruit is cut down uh, and then thrown into the fire And so what John is encouraging these folks to do is to to repent in a way that's so real that it bears fruit in their lives, that it shows up in the way that they actually live their lives. They were trusting in the fact, well, I'm part of this group, uh, this ethnic group of Israel, uh, the covenant people of God. And so I don't have to worry about my life. I don't have to repent from sin. And maybe some of them even showed up and was like, oh, I'll just do this baptism thing. I guess that's what we're supposed to do now. And John is saying, don't just rely on your identity as children of Abraham, right? God can make children of Abraham from these stones if he wanted to. He's telling them you have to actually repent. And then he uses this imagery here where he says from the prophets, the ax is at the root of the tree. Uh, There was this image that showed up a couple of different times in the prophets where it says like the forest is going to be cut down uh, and uh, because God is judging the people of Israel, but all he's going to leave is the stump from one tree. And then from that stump, a remnant will Uh, will continue. And so he's using that same imagery of God's judgment on his people who are not truly repentant. And so summed up, what he's saying is don't think that just dipping in this water with no real life change is going to save you from uh, the coming wrath. Don't think just because you're born uh, Jewish, it's going to save you from the coming wrath. This is about real actual repentance and that message hit the people hard. Look at what it says in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? So this is a very common question. Um, you know, we see this in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. Uh, people are cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit. And then they ask, you know, Peter or Paul or whoever, Jesus, what should I be doing? And John's answer is basically that real repentance, when you actually turn to God, is going to show up in your behavior, and it's going to affect the way that you live your life. And he gives a few examples. Verse 10, he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Right? So um, what he says is that sharing is uh, and generosity is the sign of a genuinely changed heart, caring about other people who have less than you. And he gives these two examples. Food is an obvious one. Um, but the second one he talks about is clothing, right? Food and clothing. A tunic was like a like an undershirt. I went under your man dress kind of thing, you know, and uh, he says, look, if you've got two of these and somebody else doesn't have one, you should be giving that person two or giving that person one so that you'd both have one and the same with food. Um, And then some more sort of specific questions. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what should we do? So tax collectors, let me tell you about tax collectors. For us, you know, we hear about tax collectors in church. We don't have sort of the gut punch that some of these Jewish folks would have had as they thought about tax collectors, just, just how much they hated these tax collectors. Because here's how it worked. The Romans had taken over Israel and they were sort of this occupying power. And part of what they did as this occupying power was they demanded taxes from the people. And so what they did was they hired local people to collect those taxes And so the governor or whoever would tell a tax collector who's in charge of a city, okay, this is your city. This is how much money I need you to go get from these people, right? It wasn't just like, go get a percentage. Usually it was like, I need this many, whatever, you know this much money. And then the tax collector was allowed to take as much as he wanted. So he could go like, let's say the, the governor said, I need $100 from this family. So the tax collector could go collect $300, give 100 to the governor and keep 200 for himself. And so you could imagine that these tax collectors were thought of as um, collaborators with the Romans. They were thought of as traitors to their own people. They got rich off of abusing their own people. And so look at what John says. It says, tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what should we do? And then verse 13, right? Uh, he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. His answer, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say quit being a tax collector. What he said was, okay, this is your job. You need to do it with justice. Don't rip people off. Be fair. There is a way to do your job without sinning. Anybody in the Jewish world at this point would have been absolutely blown away by that answer because tax collectors never lived like this and everybody hated these people. Right? How can you say that this tax collector can become a part of the people who are repenting and receiving forgiveness? They're they're too far. Uh the you know, it's not exactly the same thing, but one example I sort of thought of was you know, for us the the gut punch sort of uh A person in our culture like this would be a terrorist, right? Like they hated tax collectors the same way that Americans hate terrorists and were just appalled by terrorism. Um, It's a lot different because these guys were ripping people off, terrorism's killing, you know, it's not a one-to-one, but just that idea of imagine somebody, a terrorist showing up and saying, hey, how can I volunteer in church? And the pastor says, oh, here's what you need to do. It's a terrible example because obviously people should quit being a terrorist. Um, he doesn't say that to the tax collectors, but you get the idea, right? To hear that this person can be accepted into the people of God was absolutely radical. Um, and then the next verse, uh, verse 14, another group, it says, soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. So these are probably not Roman soldiers. They wouldn't, Roman soldiers wouldn't have been here. And if the Roman soldiers had been there, they probably wouldn't have cared what John the Baptist had to say. These are probably Jewish soldiers uh, that either worked for maybe Herod or for the temple police or something like that. And notice again, the similar kind of thing. His answer is not Uh, stop being a soldier. He doesn't tell them, guys, don't be cops, don't be police, don't be soldiers, whatever they were. Uh, He says, look, your repentance should affect the way that you do your job as a soldier. You don't have to quit, but same as the tax collectors, you need to do your job justly. And so people back then we're terrified of these soldiers. Uh, There's accounts like what he says here is what we see in ancient accounts where soldiers would threaten to arrest somebody on false charges and accept a bribe or, uh, you know, they they had a lot of power. And so what he's saying is you need to do your job, but you need to do it with justice. Real repentance and turning away from sin and turning towards God is going to affect the way that you are a soldier. And so do you see what Luke is doing here? He is adding these non-respectable people into the list of who can be accepted into the kingdom of God. Soldiers and tax collectors even have a place in the kingdom. Even they can repent and turn back to God. And so, uh, this was his message. And with all this preaching, John became very popular. Verse 15. And the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So, we talked before in um, the songs of Mary and the song of Zechariah about these messianic expectations and how the people of God were waiting and waiting and waiting for this Messiah. And with the Romans there oppressing uh, the people of Israel, there was this this deep sense of expectation. And there were all these false messiahs who kept popping up. And we read even a few of the stories of some of those uh, earlier in the book of Luke. And so with these expectations, now all of a sudden, With all these people claiming to be the Messiah and stuff, this prophet shows up uh, with his camel skin and is eating locusts with the poor folks out in the desert and he's baptizing people. And, um, you know, at one point, I think somewhere it says, and all of Judea, you know, or all of Israel came to go see him, which just means like, you know, not literally, but hyperbole. Like everybody was going to see this guy and he became super popular. And uh, the reason that the Pharisees and the, the teachers and the scribes or whoever it was was out here investigating John was everybody was wondering. Is this guy the Messiah? Is this the Christ that we've all been waiting for? And look at his answer in verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff uh, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John's answer is I'm not the Messiah but the real king is coming and I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. So the rabbis there were the way it worked back in the days a rabbi would have a whole bunch of disciples and what these rabbis taught was that the disciples had to do basically whatever the rabbi asked. But tradition said that they had to do anything the rabbi asked except for like feet stuff. So you don't have to wash the feet. You don't have to tie shoes because even that is too humiliating to ask of a disciple. And so what John is saying is this is where the master and disciple usually are. He's like, this master is so great that even I, who you guys think might be the Messiah, I'm not even worthy to do the thing that normally we wouldn't even ask people to do. That's how great this king is going to be. And John says, "I'm going to baptize you with water." But this this man, this this Messiah is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is a reference to Pentecost. Um, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift that God has given his people is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But again, here, there's this tension, right? The same as before. There's a tension of some of you are going to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. uh, But then the flip side is some of you are going to receive judgment. That's what verse 17 is. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff you will burn with unquenchable fire. What that meant was uh, the wheat and the chaff. Uh, the chaff was like this stuff that was around the wheat. And you had to get it off so that you could use the little wheat kernels or whatever they're called. And the way they would do that back in the days, they would have these big winnowing forks and they would make a big pile of it. And they would scoop it and they would throw it in the air. And the wind would come through and blow. And all the chaff was so light it would blow the, the chaff off of the wheat. So the wheat would fall to the ground but the chaff would blow away. And they would just do this all day. And it was a way to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so what John is saying is that when the Messiah comes, some of you are going to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you're going to be gathered together and taken into the barn. But some of you are going to be taken uh, aside for judgment. The rest of you who reject this Messiah, this King are going to receive the judgment. And that's going to be super unpleasant to put it mildly. Verse 18, he continues. So with many other exhortations, he preached uh, good news to the people. So this, what what Luke calls this, is the gospel. This story of some of you are going to receive grace and some of you are going to receive judgment. All of this uh, is the gospel story, and so even the judgment is a part of the gospel, and we can't leave that out when we talk about. The gospel. Um, let me just take a quick sidebar here. Now, some people, when preachers stand up and we talk about judgment, immediately people go, "Oh, I don't like this idea. I don't like the idea of a God who judges. Who is God to judge me?" Um, if, but let me say this: if there is no judgment from the Creator, right? God is a just judge. He is a perfect judge. Nobody who receives judgment from God is ever going to say, "I don't deserve this," right? But if you take that away, right, the perfect judgment of a perfectly holy and just God, uh, what that means is now here on earth, we have to take judgment into our own hands. So when somebody harms me, I need to go and I need to make it right. I need to be the one who judges that person. But if God is the judge, what that does is that frees us to love and serve even enemies. And so if you take out the part where God is the perfectly holy judge who hates sin and who hates what sin does to us— If you take that away now, all of a sudden you're left with a situation where there is no justice, right? There is no just perfect judge and we have to act as the just, um, as the judge. So the, when Jesus talks later on, we'll read this about loving enemies. That's only possible if you can leave the judgment to God. And so this reality of judgment was a part of John getting the people ready for Jesus. And they responded in huge numbers. Um, But it wasn't all good news for John, right? His honesty and his talking about sin and judgment and repentance and bearing fruit, all of this stuff ended up being his sort of, um, well, his earthly undoing. Look at verse uh, 19 and 20. Uh, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things uh, that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So Luke ends the story of John the Baptist. Well, We'll read about Jesus's baptism next week, but he sort of jumps forward for a second and tells the end of the story of John the Baptist. Here's what happened is Herod Antipas, this guy we've been reading about, he divorced his first wife, uh, who was a princess from the kingdom where Petra, if you've ever seen the rock city of Petra from Indiana Jones, the princess from that kingdom was married to Herod Antipas and he divorced her. And then he married his niece who also... Happened to be his brother's wife. Her name was Herodias. This is very West Virginia of them, and I'm just kidding. Don't write me emails from West Virginia. Um, but uh, so his niece was his brother Philip's wife, and which is actually a different Philip. It's a long, it's very complicated. Uh, anyway, John spoke up in public uh, against this marriage and the divorce and the marrying his brother's wife for a lot of Old Testament reasons. Right? He's breaking a ton of these Old Testament laws, and John speaks up about this, and Herod uh has John arrested to silence him. Now Herod seemed to like John and didn't really want to kill him, uh, but the new wife, Herodias, hated John the Baptist. And one day uh, we learn in the book of Mark um, is, and uh, one of the other Gospels, I think it's Matthew, uh, one day Herod got drunk with some of his buddies, and he had his stepdaughter. So Herodias's daughter Um, which is also is great. And it's very complicated. Anyway, his stepdaughter came and she came in and she danced all strippy and naked for them or whatever. We don't know all seductively. Uh, And he liked it so much that in his drunken state in front of all his idiot buddies, he promised, I'll give you anything you want up to half of the kingdom. Um, And so she goes back and says to her mom, well, what should I ask for? And the mom is like, this is my chance. Asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So the daughter goes back and asks for that. And although it doesn't seem like Herod wanted to kill John, he didn't want to look like an idiot in front of his friends either. So he had John the Baptist beheaded and then the, his head given to the daughter on a platter. And that's how the life of John ended. Executed for calling out a local ruler uh, on his very public sin. Right. And so here's this very bold preacher uh, this amazing man of God. And I want to give you three ways that John the Baptist lived uh, into the kingdom of God. Three things that we can emulate that John the Baptist uh, did that where he lived into the kingdom of God. So the first one is this. Um, with a kingdom mindset, you don't need social standing. This is going to be one of the key themes in the book of Luke. Is that God is constantly identifying with the poor and the oppressed over identifying with the rich and the powerful. And we talked about this as we were reading together uh, on Wednesday nights, The Generous Justice book by Tim Keller. And in most other religions of the day, the gods were identifying with and supporting the rich and the powerful. And if you were rich and powerful, it's because the god Baal or one of these other gods, or whatever, was blessing you. And so the richer you were, the more powerful you were, the more blessed you were by the gods. And then Yahweh comes along and says everybody, rich, poor, whatever, is made in my image. And then the law of Moses even uh, sets out rules to protect the poor and the oppressed, which is not something we see in any other ancient culture, because that's where the heart of God is with the poor and the oppressed. And so as we open up the book of Luke, and as we look at the book of Luke, uh, who are the heroes so far? right? We have Zachariah and Elizabeth who were barren into their old age, which is very shameful in this society. It would have brought shame upon them. We have Mary, the peasant girl that everybody thinks uh, is immoral. We have Joseph, the poor carpenter. Uh, We have the shepherds, the blue collar workers, Um, we've been told now that soldiers and tax collectors can be brought into the kingdom of God. And now we have John, right? As opposed to the rulers, who's, who's the hero of this story It's not Caesar. It's not Pilate. It's not the Herod or his brother. It's not the high priests. Uh, it's John, this wandering preacher. And so John didn't care about power and social standing. And that sort of links to the second thing that I think we can learn from this with a kingdom mindset. You don't need the approval of men. Um, I read a biography a couple years ago. Actually, I listened to it while I was on one of my road trips, audiobook of Neil Armstrong. And for those of you who don't know who Neil Armstrong was, because you live under a moon rock, uh, he was the first man to walk on the moon, right? The first one out out of the capsule to walk on the moon, you know, one small step, I think it was actually supposed to be for one small step for a man, one giant leap. Anyway. Um, so one of the things that struck me most about reading this biography though, was uh, Neil Armstrong's humility. He never really campaigned to become the first guy to walk on the moon. The job just sort of fell in his lap and he was in the rotation and he was next. Uh, And after it was all over, he spent a ton of time traveling around and talking to kids about space and science in classrooms. Um, And in the book, the author had a really interesting line. I I didn't look it up. It was something like this, where he said, look, the fact that there are no Neil Armstrong rocket burger joints tells you pretty much everything you need to know about the man, right? He didn't exploit his fame for wealth, and he died kind of like a middle class guy. You know, nothing special. Uh, Neil Armstrong, though, was a genuine, brave hero of humanity who accomplished something absolutely stunning. And it never got to his head because Neil Armstrong didn't need the approval of man. John the Baptist was just like this, but maybe amplified. His ministry was never about his own ego, his own fame. He was crazy humble. Uh, In John 3, in John chapter 3, Um, He even says this about Jesus. Some of his disciples are complaining, oh man, Jesus, there seemed to be this rivalry with John's disciples and Jesus's disciples. And John says, look, he's the Messiah, right? He must increase, but I must decrease. And so... With John the Baptist, there was no book tour. There was no speaking tour. There were no conferences. He didn't check his Instagram likes all the time to get approval from strangers. He had the approval from God, and that was all he needed. And so with John, he didn't care about his social standing and his power. He didn't care about the approval of man. So what is it that drove this man? What is it that that drove John the Baptist? It was his mission, right? It was his place in the gospel story. And that brings us to our third thing our third idea, with a kingdom mindset, you point people to Jesus, right? That's what John's ministry was all about. Pointing people to Jesus and then getting out of the way. We live in a very, in a world that doesn't know Jesus. Some people maybe know a little bit about Jesus. Some have a uh, like mis misguided views about Jesus. Like there's the group of people who are, you might see this phrase, every Easter, there's all these documentaries on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. Who was the real Jesus? Who was the historical Jesus? And these guys think that they're being all academic and scholarly by just basically going through the Bible and saying, oh, I don't believe this part. I don't believe that part. We're only going to search for the historical Jesus Honestly, ignoring all this stuff that we talked about in the first sermon on Luke about how the book of Luke is the best, you know, these gospels, these four gospels really are the best uh, historical evidence. And there's strong historical evidence that this is really what happened. So there's the historical Jesus folk. There's the people who think, well, Jesus was just a good teacher. Um, and we've talked about this too, right? C.S. Lewis demolished that argument because Jesus said he was God. So, you know, he can't be a good teacher, right? Either he's crazy, he's a liar, or he really is God. Those are the options. Um, we have people who think that Jesus is sort of the angry killjoy, the the principal in the sky who always wants to get you in trouble, right? If you don't have, uh, you know, if you guys have sex, I'm going to destroy you with the plague kind of Jesus. I just hate when people are smiling, Um, We have, you know, that's one. We have the Eastern philosophy Jesus, where Jesus was basically some sort of a hippie who would have got along great with the the Beatles while they're, you know, dropping acid in India. Uh, We have, oh, we have the easily bribed Jesus. Um, If you do, if... You know, like, uh, okay, here's your rules, and if you follow that stuff, here's what's going to happen, and I'll love you. Which is similar to sort of the prosperity gospel Jesus, where he's an ATM machine, right? Okay, I put my PIN number in, God, you owe me this. Uh, We have the white southern Jesus with his confederate flag, you know. Um, And that Jesus loves freedom in America and all that stuff more than he loves anything else. Um, We were recently watching, uh, Melissa and I, this movie called The Heat, uh, with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy and it was hilarious. That's uh, so one yeah, Melissa McCarthy's hilarious. Anyway, um and in that the it takes place in Boston and in it um Melissa McCarthy's family is all from Boston and they have all these different paintings of Jesus um like one of them is Jesus on the Celtics and he's like dunking a basketball. One, I think he's on the Bruins and the other one he's hitting a home run on the the Red Sox. And so the idea though is that uh Jesus is whoever He's connected to whatever it is that I love, right? He, I can mold Jesus to be who I want. And so we've said a few different times, what we're doing with the book of Luke here is we want to get the, the best picture of the real Jesus that the gospels present, right? We want to see the real King Jesus. We want to worship the real King Jesus. We want to serve and love the real King Jesus. And so how is it that, how can we serve the real King the way that John did, and the answer uh, comes from a little bit later in the story. Um, Matthew 28, I'll read 18. This is the Great Commission. You know this verse probably. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Acts 1 8 is very similar. Where it says, Behold, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then all of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So after the resurrection of Jesus, the people of God, we are a sent people. John's ministry was to get a very specific group of people ready for the coming of Jesus. They came to John, they were baptized by him, and then when Jesus came, they were ready. Our job is similar, but outward focused. So with John, everybody came to him. With us, we are sent to the world. We are called to go outside of the walls of the church and outside of our comfort zones to point people to King Jesus. And so that's the question then is, how does your life prepare the people around you uh, to meet the King Jesus, to meet our King, right? Try to see things maybe for a second, try to imagine what it's like to be an outsider and see things from an outsider's perspective, right? Like think of a guy like this. Um, Maybe he's divorced. Let's make up a character. He's divorced a few times. Um, He's not very nice. People around him don't really like him. He's cheap. He never tips at restaurants that sort of thing. He's always talking about my rights and me and he's so selfish. Uh, his circle of friends, everybody that he interacts with and knows is just like him. And maybe you know this guy from work or the gym or wherever and you know this is the description of him and then you find out, oh, this guy is also a Christian. What is that going to make you think of Jesus? Right? You're going to think, well, not very much. Right? This guy's an idiot. <laughs> And he wants me to follow his king. Now let's flip that the other way, right? Imagine, you know, a lady from work or the gym or book club or whatever, and she's gentle and everybody loves her. She's kind. She's, uh, she's generous She's always helping other people. She always seems to be sacrificing to make other people's lives better. She's very interested in you, but not in kind of a weird, I'm going to cut you up and wear your skin like a suit sort of way, but just like a generally interested in who you are. She's a good friend. She asks about your life and your history. And then you find out down the road uh, that she's a follower of Jesus. Now, which one of these people do you think is acting more like John the Baptist? Getting people ready to meet King Jesus definitely that woman, the second person. And my point is this, John had a ministry to prepare people to G- for Jesus, to point people to him. And we as a sent people of God, after the resurrection, we have a very similar calling. And that starts with love. It starts with humility. It starts with service, right? We can't go through life caring about social status. We can't go through life caring what people think about us. Right? We can't go through life worrying about acquiring wealth and working our way to the top. The kingdom mindset is the opposite. The kingdom mindset is different. In the kingdom of God, what we care about is what Jesus thinks about us. We care about the poor and the oppressed because that's what God cares about. We care about justice because our God is a God of justice. We care about outsiders because at one point we were outside until God brought us in. We care about people because all people are made in the image of God. And ultimately, if we're going to be a church right? A kingdom church, a church filled with kingdom people. We're going to have to take this worldly stuff and put it aside and then really press into the mission to point people to Jesus. And we do that through love and service and humility. We have an amazing uh, call from the Lord. Right, what what God is calling us to is really amazing. What well, let me read to you a little later from Luke, we'll talk about this down the line. This is Luke 7, 28. Jesus talking about John the Baptist said this: I tell you, among those born of women is none greater than John, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John had a really cool job in the kingdom, but he died before the death and resurrection of Jesus. He lived on the other side of the cross, he was the last Old Testament prophet what we are called to Jesus says is even cooler than what John was called to. We get to do what he was called to do but with the whole picture. Right? And we are called as uh, individuals and as a church community to take the mission of God seriously, right? We want to to live lives that point people uh, to King Jesus. We want to point people to the, the love of God so that they look at us and they see the salvation that is offered in him. And then they're brought into the fold as well. And that's the kind of church I want us to be in. Like if we're going to be a John the Baptist kind of church, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to say, Hey, look at how great our church is. Look how great our pastors look how great, you know, whatever we're going to say, look how great our King is. And then we're going to get out of the way because that's that's what John the Baptist did and that's what I really pray uh, for us as a church let's pray